The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words from Gramsci, uh, roughly paraphrased by Zizek, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. Um, today, uh, I want to take up a very uh, venerable monster uh, who's getting on in age and uh, who recently announced his retirement from being um, a newspaper columnist. I'm talking about Pat Buchanan. Uh, and I was struck not just by the news, which is not unexpected. He is, uh, you know, uh, well past being a senior citizen, uh, but uh, the lack of reaction um, that uh, I didn't see a lot about this. And to, um, um, friend of the podcast, John Gans, on his uh, 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 Substack, Unpopular Fronts, did a very nice survey of Buchanan and his importance. And one of the points he made was that Buchanan is like, you know, the dominant figure on the American right and more important than uh, people that are perhaps more widely discussed, like William F. Buckley Jr. And I think John is right. Um, and so I want to like uh, talk about the importance of Buchanan and his place in history. And I think he's crucial for understanding where the American right uh, is right now. If there's an addiction to culture war, um, if, um, uh, you know, the politics of race and gender are so dominant, uh, I think Buchanan is a big part of the reason. Uh, now, the to uh, discuss this, I'm very happy to have on the historian Nicole Hemmer, uh, who is um, the uh, founding director of the Carolyn T. and Robert M. Rogers Center for the Study of the Presidency at Vanderbilt University, um, a widely published scholar, both in academia and in uh, more popular outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times. And uh, for our purposes, uh, the um, uh, recently published author, of a book called Partisans, uh, which is about the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s. And uh, we're a podcast, so you can't see this, but if you Google her book, it has a very striking cover, which has Pat Buchanan uh, right on the front of the cover. Um, uh, it's actually a lovely cover. I, I, whoever did the design uh, <laughs> deserves a, um, uh, all uh, props. So I, I, I'm very happy to have Nicole here. And I, maybe just, we'll, we'll go to the history of Buchanan and who he is, but maybe we can just start with um, just a, you know, like a brief sense of uh, why I feel he's important and why um, Nicole also feels he's important enough to put on the cover of her book. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Jeet. And I, I do actually agree with John Gans that um, Buchanan is probably a more significant, if underappreciated figure than somebody like William F. Buckley Jr. If William F. Buckley Jr. was sort of the brains of Cold War conservatism, Buchanan is both the brains and the, the emotional heart of the post-Cold War conservative movement. And so was not able only to bridge the Cold War and post-Cold War right um, but was really able to tap into both the emotion and the intellectual movement behind um, what would emerge and what ultimately would give us figures like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, which might also explain why he is, he's perhaps faded from view because his political project is done. He won the war um, and now he seems uh, less relevant because he's less necessary in a way. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, before we get into like his sort of history, I just want to one thing that you brought up, which I, I think is very important, is the sort of the both the brains and the heart, uh, which is that he uh, Buchanan, like you know, if you look at his career, um, uh, was part of many different things and was able to bring a lot of different things together. That's to say, he was both uh, you know like um, a newspaper columnist, but you know wrote for intellectual magazines like National Review and hung out with very important intellectuals like Joseph Soburn and Sam T. Francis, who weren't like very widely known by the public but are key theorists. Uh, but he also, you know, worked as an operative in the Nixon, Ford and Reagan mm -hmm. administrations and was a kind of um, liaison between them and the sort of hard right. Uh, and he was also a television personality and he ran for president uh, on a number of occasions. And, and so it's like a public figure in that way. So it, it's really a remarkable number of things that he brought together, which I find it, you know, like 
usually it's like uh, people do one or two of these things and not like all of them. Uh, so I think that's also very interesting about him. Um, but maybe to like just, I think to understand Buchanan, um, uh, you know, when you talk about the heart, it's a he in his autobiography he talks about a conservatism of the, of the heart and uh, uh, conservatism based on like you know loyalty to family and to values and um, he's very much uh, you know speaks of the autobiographical origins of his uh, view of the world you know uh, growing up uh, in this uh, German Irish Catholic family um yeah uh, in the uh, early 20th century and uh strikingly in, in his autobiography um right from the start uh he uh, mentions you know like in his household there were like three heroes uh, uh the uh spanish fascist dictator uh francisco franco uh the uh military general douglas macarthur and the uh, uh cold war demagogue um joseph mccarthy so th th what does that constellation tell us what is this world that buchanan is coming out of well, it shows us that he comes from a strict, more authoritarian worldview, somebody who really appreciates authoritarianism and appreciates strong arm tactics and appre appreciates force. I mean, this is something that if you also read his his autobiography, you'll know he's constantly like recounting fights that he gets in. Um, he talks about boxing in order to make him strong as a young child um, and that respect for force was something that was really important to Buchanan and a kind of suspicion of democracy, which is going to come back in the 1990s. But it was there, as his autobiography suggests, right from the beginning, that it was something that was tied into um, his his life. Um, and that he was also, he was looking for sources of inspiration, both among conservative Irish Americans, um, but also abroad, um, that there was something inspiring about somebody like Franco who blended his religion and his politics. And Catholic Catholicism would be a pretty important part of Pat Buchanan's worldview and his identity. Um, and you can you can tell that from the house he grew up in. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's right. I think that it's good that you mentioned the Catholicism because it's a particular brand of Catholicism, uh, you know, uh, uh, growing up, uh, uh, you know, before Vatican II, um, mm -hmm. there was a kind of strong um, there was a tensions within American Catholicism at that time between the sort of more liberal Americanizing wing um, uh, and uh, uh, people who had a more uh, explicitly authoritarian view and who were suspicious of democracy as something that's like um, uh, hostile to Catholic values. And so I think that, that I think that debate within Catholicism is very important. And he is very much a you know, pre-Vatican II Catholic uh, uh, it, it, uh, in that sense. So this constellation, um, and, and I mean, Tati underscore the Catholicism. I mean, another figure that he mentions in his uh, autobiography is uh, Father Coughlin, who was a, mm -hmm. uh, an anti-Semitic uh, radio uh, demagogue. And, uh, uh, and I don't want to, um, I don't think we should ignore the anti-Semitism, especially, I mean, John Gans, in his uh, review, uh, pointed out something that's in um, the biography by Tim Stanley of Buchanan, which is that uh, his uh, the Buchanan household uh, basically terrorized their Jewish neighbors and and uh, you know like uh, hurled all sorts of uh, uh, epithets and you know used physical violence to intimidate their uh, uh, the Jew um, the Jewish people that uh, were unfortunate enough to live next to them. Yes, and that anti-Semitism is going to be a feature of Buchanan's politics basically for his whole life. Um, it comes up more in the 1980s and 1990s as he's becoming a, a political figure in his own right. Um, but his defense of Nazis, his downplaying of the Holocaust, um, there is this real vein of anti-Semitism that runs through his politics and the things that he chooses to focus on, his celebration of uh, German military might in World War II, his um, books about why we shouldn't have gone to war in World War II, why that was a bad war to go into. And it is something that causes a kind of break between Buchanan and other parts of the conservative movement. I mean, Bill Buckley writes a kind of lengthy piece looking at uh, Buchanan's anti-Semitism in the early 1990s. So there is a kind of... Um, the anti-Semitism is is pretty clear when it comes to, to Buchanan, which is why it's so remarkable that he has such a long public career um, with very little blowback 
for that anti-Semitism. Yeah, no, I mean, it is interesting to think about, uh, like, you know, like why, uh, you know, someone who in his autobiography talks about enjoying Father Coughlin, uh, there wasn't that suspicion. But I mean, I think one perhaps reason uh, he was able to become a more mainstream figure is the Cold War, um, mm -hmm. which um, had a sort of complex series of effects uh, uh, of um, both mainstreaming sort of, you know, right-wing Catholicism, that in the 1950s, you know, Catholics were seen as more respectable uh, and therefore, you know, like able to get jobs in the FBI and were like more uh, visibly public as part of the sort of pantheon of American religion. You know, this is the this is the era of, you know, a Catholic, Protestant, and Jew is seen as, uh, as all-American and leading to the, you know, Kennedy becoming president. Uh, but also, um, so there's a kind of assimilation of Catholicism into the American mainstream, uh, which maybe takes some of these, you know, Coglinite rough edges out. Uh, but also the Cold War in some ways made the older um, imperatives, um, uh, the, the old right uh, um, uh, authoritarianism, it muted that somehow because there's more of a need of a coalition um, between sort of, you know, the old right and Cold War liberals, you know, especially like it, um, uh, after the Vietnam War. But I mean, you certainly see um, this change that the Cold War is bringing about. Um, historians of conservatism often talk about it in terms of fusionism. And uh, this is a kind of a term of art, but I think it's very useful to understand that there was a kind of a new conservatism that emerged in the 50s, which was fusionist and um, which muted some of the uh, old right tendencies of, you know, isolationism and overt anti-Semitism. Do you want to, can you maybe explain what this fusionism was? Sure. So the Cold War does have this kind of constraining effect in some ways um, because the U.S. has to be held up as this avatar of democracy and of diversity in some ways some mm. limited ways yeah. um and that and unity um and that has an effect on the conservative movement a conservative movement that had been somewhat atomized um that had been very committed to um anti-interventionism um had these strains of pro-fascism or at least fascism friendliness mm. um and anti-semitism and in order to kind of fit into the politics of the cold war era some of those things had to go away and in in suppressing both the um the anti-interventionism and suppressing the anti-semitism you were able to as i think it's frank meyer um defines it to fuse together different strands of conservatism that had not always been on the same page or been part of the same movement and the strands that he sees as being fused together are libertarianism this idea of small government um of of radical individualism, um, the strain of traditionalism, uh, a commitment, as we were talking about, with those uh, sort of unreformed Catholics and um, a, a devotion to uh, traditional hierarchies and social structures, uh, including things like segregation. And then those are fused together by a commitment to anti-communism, something that both traditionalists and libertarians could agree upon. And so anti-communism becomes the, um, and this kind of militaristic anti-communism becomes the glue that holds this movement together, but it requires some concessions, concessions like being more involved in the world um, in order to combat this existential threat um, coming from the Soviet Union. So that's what Meyer sees and then Buckley promotes as the new conservatism of the Cold War. That's right. Um, and uh, so anti-communism is the glue that brings together people that are otherwise very disparate. I mean, like, you know, from libertarians who want less government to someone who's like an, an authoritarian, like Buchanan, there is a big kind of difference. Um, and I, 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 I should mention for listeners, the, the, the real, you know, um, uh, historian who did uh, uh, laid out this framework uh, is uh, uh, George Nash, uh, mm -hmm. you know, very important, I, I think flawed in some ways, but uh, very, uh, or uh, uh, or a book I can argue with, but a, a very important book on the you know, conservative intellectual movement. And he puts fusionism as the great, uh, you know, achievement. And uh, one thing that's interesting in Nash's book is he mentions that anti-communism is a glue. And he, uh, there's points where he speculates, like what happens if anti-communism is not there? And then we'll we'll, we'll, we'll get to, to that. Uh, but the, the other thing with the fusionist, um, uh, uh, consensus that was created is that there were always people in the consensus who felt that they were getting the shaft. 
Uh, one is the sort of, on the one hand, you had the more extreme libertarians like Murray Rothbard, who thought that they were had to buy into, you know, the military industrial complex. Uh, and on the other hand, you had traditionalists uh, like uh, William F. Buckley's brother-in-law, L. Brent Bozell Jr., who basically thought that uh, the fusionist was a um, just a way of letting big business and anti-communist dominate and the traditionalists would just get rhetorical praise, but that their issues like abortion uh, were not going to be paid attention to. So, so, so there's this kind of within that fusionist consensus, there's a kind of, you know, various factions are always like thinking like they're being um, subsumed and they're being forced to make compromises that they didn't want to make. Um, but, but I think it's true to say, like, if one wants to understand, um, you know, um, the sort of conservative movement, like in the period of the 60s and 70s and 80s, you, is it fair to say fusionism was the dominant mode? It absolutely was. And you're right that there was this greater diversity that was happening within the conservative movement. And perhaps that sense that you're getting the shaft is actually the glue that held the conservative movement together because it was a, a pretty common uh, um, emotion at the heart of, of the conservative movement. Um, but yes, I, the, the idea that um, fusionism was conservatism, I think was made very clear by Ronald Reagan, who was able to bring in the religious right to his coalition, while at the same time embracing supply side economics, slashing taxes, uh, rolling back on regulation. And so in many ways, Reaganism was fusionism in office, right? He is able to govern in a way that both um, paid fealty to the various strains of the conservative movement, but also exacerbated some of those tensions that you were talking about before. The new right and the religious right regularly felt like they were getting the short end of the stick from the Reagan administration, that he was all in when it came to his kind of um, conservative libertarianism. He was all in when it came to the Cold War. But when it came to things like promoting a constitutional amendment for abortion or a constitutional amendment restoring school prayer, um, that he he was paying lip service to it, but not actually following through. And that generates a considerable amount of criticism from his right. Um, and you can begin to see now that conservatives have power, that those fracture lines are going to become more important because there is something more at stake. Yeah, in some ways, it's easier for the conservative movement uh, when it was in opposition to hold together because they're fighting this sort of, you know, liberal uh, dominance. But once they're in power, then people start asking, what am I getting from this? And I think it's a fascinating part of your book, uh, Partisans, that uh, you uh, um, talk about the dissatisfaction with Reagan that was on the right. Uh, and I think many of our listeners, especially on the nation, might think like, how could conservatives be unhappy with Reagan? I, you mentioned some of the stuff. Uh, there's also in your book, you talk about judges, right? Like there was a feeling mm -hmm. that the judges that Reagan was putting in are, you know, business friendly, but not necessarily uh, are, are, um, uh, friendly on issues like abortion. Um, but do you, yeah, yeah. Do you want to like say anything? I mean, be, I mean, we can it's sort of interesting in, in this situation because he went to work for the Reagan administration, uh, but he's also a critic of Reagan from the, from the right. That's right. So this this group called the New Right had been levying complaints about Reagan even before Reagan ran in 1980. Um, they didn't see him as conservative enough um, for some of the very reasons that you're, we've talked about and, and because he was getting older. And they were like, we need somebody young and we need somebody who is really going to push for all of these things. Sandra Day O'Connor becomes the nominee for the Supreme Court. They're really mad about that. They don't think that she's conservative enough. They also argue that he only put her on the court because she was a woman and that is playing with identity politics. Um, they are absolutely livid when he agrees to raise taxes. They're absolutely livid when he begins opening negotiations with the Soviet Union. It's at that point that one of the new right leaders calls him an, a useful idiot for Soviet communism, um, which is quite a thing to say about Ronald Reagan. Um, and Pat Buchanan is part of that mix. He's part of that mix of people who are taking swings at Reagan. And that, in fact, is how he becomes part of the Reagan administration. Leaders of the New Right give um, the Reagan administration a list of people who they 
think Reagan should add to his administration as a kind of sop to the new right and to these critics. And Pat Buchanan is the one that they ultimately hire. He comes in as Reagan's communications director. And what's fascinating about him is he comes in as Reagan's communications director, and he takes those same fights. Um, first of all, to the administration, he will continue to, to uh, cause chaos within the administration. And when he loses those fights as communications director, he'll just go off and he'll like write an op-ed in the Washington Post criticizing the administration, even as a member of it. Um, and so he uh, he plays along somewhat, but he doesn't allow himself to be fully muzzled as a member of the administration for the, the two short years that he's there. Yeah, now that you've mentioned this, um, it's kind of striking that uh, the difference between him under Reagan and him under Nixon, because he'd also worked in the Nixon administration and was kind of in the same sort of function. He was a, the liaison agent between you know Nixon, who was seen as a more establishment right uh, uh, Republican, and the 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 hard right that distrusted uh, Nixon. And and uh, but um, my sense is like from both your book and from others uh, writings on uh, Buchanan, he was like much more loyal to Nixon. And then and uh, so, so so I I, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head, but it, it is an interesting difference. Oh, it's it's very different in part because you know Nixon plucks Buchanan out of relative obscurity. He he was an opinion writer for uh, and an editor for a St. Louis newspaper, um, and he's still in his twenties when Nixon taps him to come be an aide and a speechwriter for the Nixon campaign and then into the administration. And there is that kind of of loyalty. I think um, Buchanan's nickname for him is the old man. And he, even through Watergate and even well after, continues to put Nixon at the heart of the stories that he tells. He's written a couple of very laudatory books about Richard Nixon um, because he does feel that loyalty. And he he writes in his book, um, one of his many books, um, that he felt sick when Nixon opened China. One of these um, these big fault lines between the conservative movement and the Nixon administration. But he is definitely not out there writing criticisms of Nixon, because in that case, because Nixon is a kind of father figure, mm -hmm. um, the loyalty trumps the ideology. With Reagan, Buchanan doesn't feel any sort of loyalty. And in fact, you know, even while he's in the Reagan administration, he is plotting his moves to run for president himself because he thinks Reagan has fallen so short. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's right, that there is a kind of... Um... Of a father figure element of of uh, 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 to Nixon, uh, and you know, just reading Buchanan's autobiography, you know, like the father is always a big figure. You know, the father is the guy who taught them to to fight, and you want to be a manly man like the father. And I'm also thinking that even like although Nixon's had many more sort of violations of conservative norms than uh than uh, Reagan did you arguably I mean like you know like the opening to China but also you know wage and price control this is a, mm -hmm. a lot of the domestic policies um but maybe like Ray Nixon's pugnaciousness and that he's a kind of like a fighter um and that you know like overrides everything that there's a kind of like emotional attachment and it, precisely because in Watergate, he's like kind of besieged by mm -hmm. uh, the media and the, the Democrats in Congress. You know, they, so Nixon is, um, um, you know, he, he the policies are maybe less significant than the fact that this is a guy who's, you know, really hates liberals in the way that Buchanan does. And is, 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 is like willing to like take the fight to them. And I think that's right, that there's an, an affective connection yeah. uh, between the two of them. And I think you're also hitting on the head with that kind of anti-liberalism, yeah. um, because that becomes so much the emotional core of the right moving into the 1990s. And Buchanan understands that instinctively, in part, probably because he learns it from Nixon. It is not, I mean, certainly Reagan takes his swings at liberals, um, but he doesn't have that same kind of in his bones, I hate these guys, uh, kind of feel to him well no i mean i know reagan is a very different figure just because you know he's not a, a, a born and bred republican you know mm -hmm. he had been a democrat for a long time uh and there's that you know famous geniality and and maybe coupled with the sort of you know um uh, cold war concern for like sort of consensus building or you know like, like the the sense that you know america has to be unified and so reagan does have these outreach moments to uh tip o'neill um so so there is a way in which um 
uh, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. Reagan, the what you call the effective concern, like like there's something about Reagan's personality that might have made him very popular with the general public, but which really set the right off. Absolutely. And this is something that becomes a big break between the right of the 1980s and the right of the 1990s is that Reagan, in many ways, his project is to build a consensus around conservatism. And in some ways, he does that. I mean, he wins these these massive landslide elections, as does uh, George Bush, his George H.W. Bush, his first go around. Um, and the figures of the 1990s are really trying to use conservatism to divide believing that that can be a road to power as well. Um, and it's a very different approach and it, it hits on very different emotional vectors. I mean, it's the difference between mourning in America and Pat Buchanan's convention speech in 1992. They're just very different yeah. visions. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, that, that, that issue of division uh, uh, versus unity, national unity, is very key. And I think that there's a famous like memo that Buchanan wrote uh, in the Nixon administration where he says, you know, uh, we'll tear the country in half and we'll have the bigger half. <laughs> that, that, you know, like I, th I think it, the phrase that was used was positive polarization. That yes. you know, like if we you know hit the, the uh, uh, if you have Spiro Agnew's kind of speeches attacking you know liberals as the nattering nahabs of negativism, uh, which is began in, uh, as was actually the writer of that, and and then you know like really uh, 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 polarizing and like uh, attacking uh, you know the press as the enemy, the liberal elite as the enemy. This will be very divisive for America, but, you know, like the political upside. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is that where will be the majority in that situation? Absolutely. Uh, and what I like about the phrase uh, positive polarization and that iteration of the idea is that it is that it is a reminder that polarization is a tactic rather than a description of politics, right? It is something that political figures use in order to um, achieve something politically rather than just kind of like the state of things as they unfolded. Yeah, no, that's right. So the, the um, so he has this sort of polarizing Nixonian instinct, uh, and but he's in the you know Reagan White House, and Reagan you know tries to be a more genial figure, and is also you know like tries to Reagan. The other big difference is that he's offering a positive vision of America in terms of like immigration, right? You know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, going along with uh, um, amnesty and, uh, you know, Reagan's, uh, if you look back on the, both the speeches he and his vice president, uh, George H.W. Bush did, you know, their statements on immigration are very different than, you know, uh, what we'll later see from, from people like Buchanan and Trump. Um, uh, so so within that, mix, that Reagan um, White House, um, it's a very... Um, uh, curious situation of to be the sort of liaison to the hard right, unhappy with Reagan, but you know, like um, trying to push him to be a more polarizing figure. And in some ways, the um, you know, Re the end of Reagan's presidency and the fact that he's no longer president and but can become this mythic figure that you know we we name airports after um, uh, creates a, a new opening for figures like Buchanan. They can you know like bring be much more vocal about their unhappiness with the Republican Party than they could under Reagan. Especially because they now have a new target. They can leave Reagan alone. Reagan's going to go off into retirement. Um, he can become, as you were saying, this mythological figure. But now they have George H.W. Bush in the White House, and they never trusted him, and they never liked him. So every time he commits the same kinds of heresies that uh, Reagan committed, like raising taxes, um, Bush just gets it straight on the chin, right? They're swinging and they're connecting every single time because... Bush is such an easy figure on the right to beat up on because he doesn't have he doesn't invoke that same kind of loyalty um, and he doesn't uh, have that same kind of support or standing on the right, but also just in the United States more generally. And so that's where Pat Buchanan and others on the right are able to sharpen their 
anti-Reagan politics is as a kind of anti-Bush politics. And this is where you see figures like Newt Gingrich starts to break ranks even more in this period um, when he quite famously helps to broker the budget deal that will raise taxes. um, And then right before the Rose Garden ceremony announcing it, veers off and goes to a press conference to denounce it. Um, And this is also the period in which Pat Buchanan um, starts to come out more vocally against the politics of the Reagan era. He kind of played around with it. He floated the idea of a presidential run in 1988, but the Reagan legacy was so large at that time, it was very difficult for him to do. But by 1991, he's very much, he's out there writing columns because he's back in the news game um, where he is um, making very clear the distinctions between um, himself and President Bush and the, the politics of the 1980s. And that's also the place where he's working out his thoughts about new political figures in the horizon, like David Duke, and saying, uh, you know, look, I'm not going to say go vote for a Klansman, but Duke is on to something. And if we can expropriate these ideas and the emotions that they tap into and the fears that they tap into and bring that to the heart of our politics, we're going to be in better shape. And it's that idea of division and polarization and emotion that he's working out during the Bush years and will put into his 92 campaign. That's right. Um, so he, 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 uh, in this sort of, you know, like post-Reagan uh, era, um, the sort of fractures on the right start to become more visible. Um, uh, and as we mentioned before, partially this issue of the Cold War is no longer there to unify the right. And you start seeing um, uh, these divisions. And Buchanan's not alone. He's a, there's a, there's a larger group of sort of intellectuals and, you know, sort of policy entrepreneurs um, that get labeled or call themselves the paleocons or uh, paleoconservatives. Um, uh, you know, the, the just to throw out some names out there, you know, um, it would be the people associated with Chronicles magazine, uh, like uh, uh, Tom Fleming, um, um, the uh, Samuel T. Francis, um, and within National Reviews, Joseph Soburn um, is uh, has strong affinities, and he would soon break with sort of National Review. Uh, but w- 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 uh, do you want to like maybe just uh, outline like where these sort of paleo conservatives are coming from and their kind of views? Sure. So we had talked earlier about the constraining force of the Cold War as um, bringing together the Cold War conservative movement. In, in other ways, it also limited the political options for policy entrepreneurs and for political thinkers. Um, for instance, in during the Cold War, it was expected that you would sing peons to democracy because democracy was at the heart of the Cold War. And once the Cold War ends, you have figures like Francis and like Buchanan who are out there saying, yeah, democracy isn't that great. Now that we won the Cold War and we've defeated communism, now it's time, as Buchanan writes, to turn our attention to defeating democracy. Um, and to addressing both the ills of democracy and the false image around it as this ideal form of government. And he's writing that like just as soon as the Berlin Wall comes down, like he is he is on this beat. And that suggests that the constraining power of the Cold War had been a real force in American politics, but that the old right that was more or less um, muted, if not demolished by the Cold War, had been there all along. Those ideas had been in ferment. Um, and when there was more space to to explore those ideas, they come open. And the same thing is true for things like, um, I mean, you talked about how Reagan embraced um, the kinds of ideas of bringing people together, uniting people, you know, not being anti-Semitic, not being openly racist. Um, These ideas that had become particularly important by the late 1960s and the 1970s in mainstream national politics, people like Sam Francis are coming out and saying, this idea that everyone's going to eventually be equal that's not actually realistic, that in fact that there are clear differences between the races and there's a clear racial hierarchy and we are doing ourselves a real disservice by not acknowledging that. Um, And again, those ideas had been there. Richard Hernstein was writing about um, IQ differences and writing about um, race and race realism back in the 1970s, but it takes the end of the Cold War and this kind of opening up of a political and intellectual space for those old right and um, what we might consider far right, they've become more mainstream ideas to um, move to the center of conservative debate. 
Yeah, no, I I think that's the um uh, the major change, and I think you know if one were to use the language of psychology, it's sort of the return of the repressed. <laughs> that you know, like uh, all the ideas uh, from the you know thirties and forties and fifties of you know um, um, MacArthur, uh, McCarthy, Coughlin, Franco. You know, like we have to you know put them in the closet for <laughs> for for the duration of the Cold War, and uh, but now they can uh, now it's all uh, they can come back um, to maybe like sort of contextualize some of the stuff. Some of the um, paleocons are coming out of are basically neo confederates. They're people like um, uh, um, 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 Melvin uh, Bradford and Samuel T. Francis, who, if you read their writing, you know, like have a very um, uh, have the um, old confederate view of uh, American history um, and uh, opposition, and you know, including a uh, very rosy view of sort of Jim Crow America, um, uh, but but also like sort of Catholic reactionaries like. Buchanan and Joseph Soburn, who you know come out of a tradition and always saw democracy as as being a, a threat to Christian value. Um, and interestingly enough, there's a kind of there's a kind of uh, reconciliation with a type of libertarianism uh, that was never happy with the Cold War because it led to a big military buildup. Of um, uh, the figure here is uh, Murray Rothbard. Uh, who uh, also becomes a very close to Buchanan and and this sort of movement. So this is a very sort of motley crew, in some ways, you know, as diverse as fusionism, uh, but they can come together under a new um, dispensation, not of anti-communism, but of anti-liberalism. Right. And it becomes especially important that you have groups in there like um, Rothbard and this kind of um, anti-interventionist libertarianism, because that is going to give Buchanan real cachet in the 1990s and the 2000s, his opposition to the initial um, Persian Gulf War in the early 1990s, um, his critiques of um, major alienating international um, institutions, uh, his opposition to, say, the WTO, um, and then his opposition to the war in Iraq in yeah. uh, in 2002 and 2003, which made him very much an outlier on the right and for a while will get him read out of the conservative movement, but keeps him alive as a figure of relevance. There's a reason why MSNBC hires him in 2002, and it's because he is this conservative who's criticizing George W. Bush and, oh, isn't that interesting? And it allows him to be a pretty mainstream figure, even at a time that he is writing some pretty vicious stuff um, about immigration, um, about race um, and still about uh, anti-Semitism as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is very interesting. I mean, like, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm old enough to actually remember the 1990s and it's very distressing uh, for me personally as, as someone who was like very skeptical of uh, globalism that the only figures that you would see, you know, critical of NAFTA on mainstream television were Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot. And, you know, like, even though like I knew that there were a lot of people in, you know, who had very different politics, who were like in the labor movement, who were, you know, equally critical. So, so it is a sense in which, um, well, there's there's a couple of things you hit on there, and and, and the, maybe um, that he was able to be the uh, his relevance came from the fact that he could vocalize opposition to stuff that um, existed uh, uh, in the general country, but not in the establishment. And and I, I would also say that a lot of his opposition transcended the normal right to left stuff. I mean, there was there would be a lot of people on the left who would, would have shared his critique. Of you know interventionist foreign policy and of uh, 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 these uh, so-called you know free trade agreements or you know and of glo of globalization as it was being uh, formed. Um, but the other aspect that made him relevant and it's again this kind of very inside outside thing that he always has is this media approval he had that even though you know this is someone who you know in his autobiography says Father Coughlin you know we love that guy and who like you know under Reagan was defending the uh in a very vicious way the uh, uh the laying of a wreath uh at the Pittsburgh cemetery mm -hmm. where, where where you know SS members of the um uh you know um uh, uh SS had been buried in Germany and who then later you know is becomes the chief the most vocal kind of defender of people accused of Holocaust crimes uh, in the American media you know all these things one would think would have make him a taboo figure but they, he's always had a kind of you know charm circle of 
people in the media, including liberals, who love him. I mean, I I, I actually very specifically remember Michael Kinsley, his co-host on Crossfire, you know, like defending him very. Um, uh, so what does that say? Like this sort of, you know, like, uh, cozy media culture that like sort of cuddled Buchanan. It's, it's such an important part of this story because Buchanan is often presented as this outsider, as this um, almost a, a kind of populist who is rising up against the establishment. He was very much part of many establishments in the United States. Not only had he been working in the rarefied air of the White House, um, but in addition to his columns, he had been um, from the start, the host of Crossfire when it launched on CNN in 1982, um, a regular part of the McLaughlin group on PBS in 82 as well. And so he had become this figure in media, a household name, because millions of people saw him every week on television, um, in addition to reading his writing that, that was syndicated across the country. And behind closed doors, he was seen as somebody who was so charming um, and had so many great stories to tell um, and was so lively. And so he builds this real network of professional connections and friendships that keep him afloat for a very long time. And it is something that actually comes up in the 1992 campaign because David Broder at the Washington Post is looking around and being like, Y'all are being so nice because, oh, you know, it's Pat Buchanan. Yes, he might say some incendiary things, but we've seen him say incendiary things on television. And then we've chuckled with him in the green room afterwards. We know that he's not a real threat because he's somebody who we, we would invite over for cocktails. So how could he possibly be this awful fascist figure in American politics? And Broder is like, he is running for the president of the United States. You have to take him seriously and set aside some of those affections that you have for him. Um, and what he was sensing was that there was a real softness in the coverage of Buchanan in 92, even though he was this very uh, incendiary figure, often hateful figure, and very pivotal figure in U.S. politics because he wasn't seen as a danger, because he was seen as a friend. He wasn't seen as a kook, because he was seen as a colleague. Um, and that created a very soft space for Buchanan to land again and again um, while he was developing um, a pretty serious and pretty aggressive kind of politics. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it is so... Uh, uh, interesting, like that sort of um, inside-outside game, and also that if you're a media figure, um, uh, you you um, you're allowed to get away with a lot more. You know, as mm -hmm. you know, the former president famously said, "If you're a star, <laughs> they let you get away with it." Uh, which is that you know, there's a sense in which, and and this is actually a very big theme in your book, uh, partisans, uh, which is um, um, uh, you know, part of what we're also seeing is the sort of fusion of uh, media with um, uh, and entertainment with politics. And there's a way in which, you know, like in some ways, um, being that TV star, being the guy on Crossfire who's arguing first with Tom Brady and then with Michael Kinsley. And then, uh, but, 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 you know, like, and you're very, he's very fierce and aggressive then, but afterwards they're laughing. So, so, so the, that gives him like a kind of insulation and protection because that's how they, people uh, in the media read him like, oh, he's the guy who plays you know, the, the right-wing fascist on Crossfire and then, but he's not really like that. Yeah, this is the, the moment when you have such space for new varied forms of entertainment with the opening up of the AM radio dial, with the rise of cable television, that suddenly there's space for experimentation in political entertainment and you get a lot of it. And what people find, what Pat Buchanan finds, what Rush Limbaugh finds, what Bill Maher finds, is that humor makes the pretty far right politics go down a lot easier. If you can put forward a very provocative idea and then get people to laugh, you have let that idea into the door and now it is part of the conversation or it lands much more softly than it would otherwise. And the kind of conservative punditry and media personalities coming out of this period, Buchanan is one, Limbaugh is one, Lar Ingram, um, are people who are learning how to treat outrage as a kind of entertainment, um, while at the same time using the ability to blend outrage and politics to kind of move the Overton window or to um, put into play ideas that would have been unthinkable if they hadn't come wrapped in a joke and uh, laughs from a studio audience. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, we don't usually think of 
Buchanan as a comedian in the Bill Maher, Laura Ingram sort of sense. Although, but he is kind of he has a sardonic humor, which is very funny. The one example I'll, I'll cite is that uh, when he was running for president, he had uh, said, you know, well, this, uh, what slogan are we going to use? There's the old one, you know, why not the best? But I think we're going to go with why not the beast? And it's really important because I think, you know, the 1992 convention speak looms so large in what people know and understand about Buchanan. And that's a pretty fierce speech. That's a pretty negative speech. And I think that it misses a lot of, first of all, that Buchanan got some laughs for that speech in the convention. Um, But also how important that kind of humor and a a kind of lightness of touch or irony that he used in his writings as well, how important that was to the politics that he was selling. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I I think that's a sort of a a crucial aspect. Now, um, it is true that like, you know, Buchanan, the 92 um, election, he uh, lost, but he did get that convention speech. And he forced that I think the the Bush administration to take like much more hardline stances. Um, and I think um, more broadly, uh, I think it's important for listeners to understand that like a losing candidate still has influence because they show that there's a constituency and they reorient sort of uh, politics. Um, And what's striking, maybe like looking back on, uh, you know, Buchanan in the 1990s, um, is that the issues that he hit on, um, you know, uh, and which he challenged the Republican consensus on. So uh, I would name uh, sort of uh, immigration, uh, you know, being much more restrictive towards immigration, uh, trade being more of a protectionist, uh, international relations uh, being much more you wanting a more unilateralist uh, isolationist America rather than one that has uh, um, many international commitments uh, and maybe the the sort of fourth element is a sort of um, the story of America that he's telling, which is not the Reagan optimistic, you know, city on a hill, but rather, you know, like we're in a deep crisis, we're in trouble. And some of that, I mean, comes from the old, old uh, Catholic, you know, dark authoritarian view, but some of it actually came from Buchanan being a candidate and going out to places like New Hampshire and seeing, you know, that a lot of America, uh, rural America is being hollowed out. And it actually, I mean, if you look at his, um, history, like he actually changes his, his rhetoric and thinking about economic matters and realizing that the the positive Reagan message is no longer resonant, that there's like, you know, um, uh, what's interesting is he lost on those. But if you look at where the Republican Party is in 2023, <laughs> like, like he won, right? Like he, the the you know, like a darker view of America and its mission and its, you know, prospects, uh, uh, nativism, protectionism, a more unilateral foreign policy, that, that that's all kind of um, the package deal. That right. He won. was res- he was responding to very real conditions. Um, the decline of the American working class was a big part of this. And he was addressing it um, there in New Hampshire. And he was picking up issues like NAFTA, that, as you mentioned earlier, Perotas as well, at the very moment that the Democratic Party is abandoning it. Um, it the fact that NAFTA was a bipartisan bill um, that was crafted by Republicans and signed into law by a Democrat, that was a big strain within the Democratic coalition that, that Clinton was going to sign um, NAFTA. And it suggested that there was a real distance between the elite and the establishment of the parties um, and people who felt they weren't being heard. Um, And the way that Buchanan responds to that is he says, oh, what the unheard need is uh, both protectionism, but they also need to um, believe that immigrants are the cause of all crime and and, uh, bad things that happen in the United States, that they're the source of all the drugs, that all of your problems are actually the responsibility of immigrants. Um, And yet he's he's speaking into a political vacuum of sorts, just as Perot was. Um, And one of the the fascinating things about the early 90s is, you know, we think about this as a decade of polarization and partisanship. But it's actually a decade where all of those lines are really scrambled in a lot of ways. The fact that Perot polls so well in the 92 campaign suggests that there are issues on the table that the Democratic and the Republican parties are missing. And I think that Pat Buchanan's, not only his success in raising those issues in 92 and moving the Republican Party, and of course, the Democratic Party is going to move pretty close to his direction on immigration as well in just a few years, 
but Pat Buchanan does better in the 1996 campaign than he does in the 1992 campaign. The Republican Party is just much savvier about how they respond to him. They do not give him a primetime speech in 1996. They relegate him. Um, they, they asked him for a tape and he refused and held his own like mini convention in response. Um, but he was tapping into something that was real and he was speaking to people who felt like they weren't being spoken for and he was offering them up some um some solutions that the party is going to grab onto in uh really the, really the 20 teens yeah no I, that, 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 i'm really glad you mentioned that because that is a major sort of theme uh, in your uh, book and it's something i also uh, when i uh, wrote about your book for the nation brought up which is the 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 sort of centralist a centrist cons uh, consensus that started in the 1990s created space for Buchanan uh, and many other figures uh, to kind of um, um, uh, take over. And it, it's a very important part of the story, um, but, but almost like rich enough for his uh, separate podcast, which I, I hope we'll do. But I, I, th I think that, uh, you know, I think we've sort of covered this sort of ground of like why uh, Buchanan uh, is a kind of, you know, central figure. Um, and I'll just maybe return to this point of like, you know, like William F. Buckley versus Buchanan that John Gans had brought up. I mean, I think one reason why Buckley gets so written about and is looms so large in sort of uh, popular memory or historical accounts is that he presented a conservatism that was palatable to liberals. That, uh, you know, he's a guy that the editors of the New York Times could have dinner with and did often have dinner with and could occasionally invite into his um, their um, newspaper to write uh, the occasional op-ed. And certainly when they were recruiting um, conservative columnists, they would try to go for more, you know, fusionist type figures like um, uh, William Sapphire or David Brooks. That that's a type of conservatism that liberals find acceptable, uh, and therefore, you know, that's the type of conservatism that gets the sh long running show on um, uh, public television and uh, gets uh, uh, um, uh, discussed in profiles. And that Buchanan's conservatism is uh, less palatable. Uh, even though he also has his friends in the media, but I mean, like it's 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 something that's maybe a little bit more distressing, and therefore less will people are less willing to actually confront it and discuss it. So, um, uh, which is why I think your your book is like really important, like just in you know, in telling a, a truer history uh, uh, where Buchanan's uh, real importance uh, shines through. Did you want to like um, have any other thoughts on Buchanan's like legacy? So I, I I would just underscore, first of all, that how long lived it was. <laughs> like he was around and has been around for a very, very long time. He's in his 90s now. He's been incredibly influential. And I, I think that it's re worth revisiting for folks who haven't um, spent a lot of time looking at, you know, whether it's him on CNN's Crossfire or on the McLaughlin Group, seeing him as a pundit and how he came to captivate so many Americans, but also maybe dig in a little bit to his writings because it's there, I think, where you get the full Buchanan in his columns and in his books. Um, he is perhaps even more incendiary there, but that's also where he's given kind of the intellectual space. If he was a popularizer in his columns and his, uh, his television appearances, it's in those books that he really does lay out a framework for a new kind of conservatism at the turn of the 21st century, um, which is worth looking at because it's the conservatism that we have today. Yes, uh, I think that's a really good note to end on. So, uh, Nicole Hemmer, uh, author of Partisans, uh, I want to again thank you for uh, being here. It was a very uh, uh, meaty and uh, rich discussion. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.